And I'd love you if you don't mind just quickly turn in your Bibles to uh, Matthew, the book of Matthew chapter 16. And I just want to unpack a few things and then uh, we'll, we'll do some prophesying. I know you guys have come for the prophetic. And so if you haven't ever had a prophetic word, here it is. God loves you with an everlasting love. Um, it's still the best word you could ever receive. Anything else over and above that is a bonus, right? Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Literally, that should read, whatever has been bound in heaven is already bound on earth. Alright, that's a better way of saying, or shall have been bound. And it goes on to say, um, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I love this text. It's one of my favorite teachings. It's one of my favorite texts to preach on. Because it encapsulates the season that we're in. Uh, God is moving the church from an understanding of ecclesiology to an understanding of kingdom theology. Um, that it's not that the church becomes less, in fact she becomes more glorious when you begin to understand that church was never meant to be an end in itself. That God is always intended for his bride to rule and reign and to extend his kingdom on the earth. In fact, the word ecclesia literally speaks of governing, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But we're in a season where God is shifting our mindset. One of the things that I have begun to understand about God is that God is a seasonal God. He loves to work in seasons. He chooses to work in seasons to help us. And uh, if you don't understand the season you're in, you don't get the maximum benefit of that season. And uh, God is so kind that even when we miss our season, He breaks into our normal running of seasons with a Kairos moment, which means an opportune time to act. And I believe we're in a season like that where God seems to break in to the humdrum of normal time and normal life, and He breaks in with an opportunity for the church to see greater expansion and greater influence. And I, I believe we're in that season where God is extending the church and bringing us into an understanding and a revelation of what it means to be a people, not only you are called to uh, make the church glorious, uh, but in fact that's not even our job. Uh, that's his job, to make the church glorious. And there's no way in the Bible that God tells us to build church. He tells us to extend the kingdom and he'll build the church. 
And we're in a season where God is wanting to help shape our understanding around the kingdom because if we get kingdom, we'll see the church thrive. Come on. Amen. And in the past, we've, because of our lack of experience, we've made kingdom simply around good works or benevolence. And so we think we're extending the kingdom if we feed baked beans and toast to the poor. When actually kingdom is about transforming every aspect of life and society so that his government, which is the government of shalom, the government of peace, is extended wherever we go. And his government of peace means uh, that everything is as he always intended it to be. Amen? And I love this text because uh, Jesus gives us a clue uh, not only to the kingdom but how to build church and what that looks like in a kingdom wineskin um, and, and I want to just unpack a few things and just want to say a, a number of preliminary uh, statements very quickly firstly uh, I love Peter in this context Simon Peter in this context gets a revelation from the father this is not because he's got some incredible ability to uh, read the Torah and intellectually discern that Jesus is the Christ this is because something from heaven in, in a relational context is being revealed to him. I love what Jesus says, my Father in heaven has revealed this to us. For a long time the church is only related to God in terms of um, master-slave context. And one of the big fundamental shifts that God is bringing in this season to the church is Father-Son that we understand that our kingdom duty, our kingdom service is not in the context of waiting for orders from God but it's in the invocation where God in his sovereignty is saying partner with me as sons Yes. that, that we get to dream with God one of the things I love about David is David never gets a command from God to build a temple he simply dreams up an idea, he dreams up the thought, wouldn't it be great if I built a house for God? And God, God's design was never that he would dwell in a temple made by man's hands. But God honors David and the next generation by presencing himself in the house that David builds for him. And it's all David's idea. Never God. God doesn't ever tell him. God doesn't ever command him to. And there's something about that that I think is an invitation because David really exemplifies a man who under an old covenant understood something of the grace of God. And, and his whole tabernacle, his whole way of building was a picture of grace in the Old Testament. It was a prophetic foreshadowing. And, and I believe God's inviting us to dream with him. Dream with him for your community. Dream with him for the areas. It, it means that it's breaking outside the box of, of what we think is good church work. It means the creative text to flow. It means there are no lines that we have to put around what God's doing because we're invited to dream with a sovereign king. And in the, in the last season, we've overemphasized, I believe, the sovereignty of God so that it has disabled our church members and our community from dreaming with Him. That we get to do stuff with Him. And I love this, revelation comes out of heaven, revelation comes out of the context of a father-son relationship. Jesus is my father in heaven, has revealed this to you. And really, Peter, when he gets this revelation, is getting a 
a, a revolutionary revelation. We read back into it and we think, oh, that's a great revelation. But when you understand what Peter was getting in the context, you realize that everything has changed. And Peter gets a revelation ahead of the rest of the disciples concerning who Jesus is. That is very powerful and life-changing if we get the same one. You see, uh, Jesus says to Peter, on this rock I'm going to build my church. And the rock is the revelation. It's not actually Peter in the sense that some of our brothers would believe that. And in one sense, Peter does have the privilege of introducing the church in the, in the book of Acts, doesn't he? He's the one who has to get up, because um, he probably was lying on the floor, and uh, he has to get up and say, these are not drunk as you suppose. Uh, it's an incredible introduction to the church. How many times have you introduced your church like that? Um, <laughs> that's how the church these are not drunk as you suppose Um, we need some more meetings like that anyway um, and I love what happens in this context Jesus is saying this rock is actually revelation and the nature of revelation is is not static it's ongoing right I'm so glad that God didn't just leave us a letter that we have to live by but he actually speaks to us he, he, he's a talking, happy God, contrary to popular belief. Uh, that he's not grumpy and he's not in a bad mood. Uh, he, he never uh, is in a bad mood because he's completely satisfied in his son. And we happen to be in his son, which means we get the benefit of a really happy God. Um, I'm going to say amen to that point because it's so good. <laughs> And the way we build churches on Revelation, it's why we don't build church on the pragmatic principles of a book that was written in the States or wherever your favorite church comes from. We build church being led by the Spirit. It's why church isn't ever going to stay the same. It's why we can't rely on tradition or religion. We have to be a people who get revelation because that's how church is built. And the revelation that Peter gets is quite specific here and really important for us to understand. The revelation that he gets is concerning Jesus as the Christ. You see, uh, Jesus, uh, as I often said, Christ is not the surname of Jesus. It is a definition of his messiahship. It is a definition of the anointed one and his anointing. And this phrase, Christ, uh, is a very powerful phrase. It's the word that we, we get from anointing or anointed one. It, it carries a sense of being smeared or covered with God. It's an Old Testament word, actually, and a, a richly... Um, a deeply rooted kingdom word. The word anointing was used in kingdom exploits to anoint kings, to anoint prophets or priests. It's a kingdom expansion word. It's not a new word for the Holy Spirit and his activity. This goes right back and is rooted in the Old Testament when the Holy Spirit would come upon ordinary flesh in order to empower them for a season. And of course it was only a season. But for Jesus, the Holy Spirit rests and remains and John the Baptist in Luke and, and I think in, in uh, Matthew says an incredible thing he says, he says I, I would not have known that this was the Son of God 
unless the Holy Spirit rests and remains. The major difference in the New Testament is that the Holy Spirit rests and remains. He takes up residence. He moves in. He tabernacles. And this phrase, anointed one, means literally to be smeared. I, I love the, that word. In South Africa, we have a thing called a braai, which is a barbecue kind of, except we have real meat yeah. in South Africa. We don't do burgers, we do real meat. And what you do with a good piece of meat, I'm a bit of a budding chef, I love cooking, is you get a really good cut of filet, and uh, just really, really good, nicely marbled with a little bit of fat in between. And then you take some good olive oil, uh, from Israel if you can find it, and uh, you pour it on to that piece of meat, right? And you get a little bit of garlic, and you get a little with rosemary and uh, if you're like me a, a good glug of red wine uh, and it needs to be drinkable red wine no, no cheap red wine and you, you get to anoint that piece of meat you chrisma that meat you, you cover that meat you marinate that meat so that the flavor of which is around the meat gets into the flesh of the meat and that's exactly the role of the person of the Holy Spirit it's like he, he wants to come upon us in such a way, of course we know he dwells within us, but he also comes upon us. Uh, those are both New Testament experiences where we get infused with the very flavor of who he is. And the revelation that Peter gets is that this person standing in front of him, this miracle worker, and there were other miracle workers in the day. This, this one who cast out demons, there were other demon uh, exorcists in, in those days. But this one, this Jesus standing in front of me, is anointed with the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And this anointing is what affirms his Messiahship. Because the first time we see the phrase, the anointed one, is it's used for David. In the Old Testament, David was the, the pre-figure or the shadow of Jesus. And we see this word anointed one used of David for the first time. Because it represents the messiahship or the kingship that brings the government of God to the earth. And David's reign was Israel's highest point. And so when, when Peter gets this revelation, what he's saying is, you're a king like David who is anointed with the power of the Holy Spirit to overthrow every illegitimate power, to overthrow every illegitimate control, to bring a radical change so that that which looks like Rome at the moment is going to be transformed to look like God's rule and reign. Now, of course, Peter thought it was going to happen through a little bit of violence and a little bit of... uh, passion. He thought it was all going to happen right there and then. And I love what Jesus says to Peter. Peter say, he says to Peter, listen Peter, get behind me Satan. I mean one moment he gets this incredible revelation, the next moment Jesus saying, get behind me Satan. And he says an incredible thing. He says, you are setting your mind on the things of man, not on the things of God. In that moment Jesus equates human wisdom and reasoning with satanic inspiration. <laughs> That's an owie right there. Because <laughs> I've been in enough meetings to know that very often when we plan and when we do things, we go for the plausible because that seems possible. And so we make decisions around what we can achieve 
and what our church can do, rather than living in the realm of faith, which can only operate in the realm of the impossible. Faith doesn't operate in plausibility. It operates in the realm of the impossible. And I've been in those meetings where you set in the budget for the church and you've got two different budgets and the one just stretches the possibility limit just a little bit but it's still possible to achieve and we say, we're going to step out in faith. (laughs) Now that's not faith, that's just human reasoning. Yeah, that's right. Faith puts you square in the middle of the impossible. Where you're just going, if God actually doesn't come through, we're all dead in the water. (laughs) When last have you made a decision like that? When last have you stepped out in a place where... Because you see, what we've allowed is our disappointment to rule our reasoning rather than heaven to dictate our decisions. That's That's what the kingdom is like. And the revelation Peter gets is one of Christ. And Jesus changes gear quite powerfully at this point. He says, Peter, flesh and blood is not revealed to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you're the rock. In other words, I'm going to build my church on the premise of anointing. On the premise of the Holy Spirit. You see, many people think to be anti-Christ is about the triple six and about stocking up for baked beans and toast just in case you're left behind. <laughs> the Antichrist has got nothing to do with that. The Antichrist has got to do with being anti the anointed one and his anointing. It means to be anti-Holy Spirit. It's a mindset that sets intellectualism and human reasoning. Now intellectualism under the anointing of the Holy Spirit is a powerful thing. Alright? But intellectualism that's based in human reasoning sets itself up against the power of God. And so when we're praying for the sick or when we believe in God for breakthrough, we reduce the power of God to our experience and our reasoning rather than living in the place of mystery, knowing that God is good and that He wants to break in sooner or later. One of the greatest obstacles to seeing the miraculous breakout in local church is not our theology around kingdom now and not yet, although for some of us we tend to lean into the not yet because we've not experienced anything now, when actually that phrase is not about the not yet, it's actually supposed to help you lean into the now of the kingdom. That's why George Eldon Ladd wrote that that's why John Wimber quoted that, it wasn't to excuse our lack it was to provoke for more it's not simply that theology it is the pastoral concern of what might happen if God doesn't show up and so we never step out in the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit just in case he doesn't show up do you know what, I'd rather step out and step into what God has then, and try and work out what the pastoral concern afterwards then not step out in faith at all and, and this phrase Christ literally is speaking about the anointing of the person of Holy Spirit and for most of us we've only ever treated the Holy Spirit as the butler of heaven 
And because of our sometimes unhelpful theology around a Trinitarian hierarchy in the economy of the Trinity, where God is somehow at the top of a triangle and the Holy Spirit and Jesus are, Jesus is a little bit lower and then we get the Holy Spirit at the bottom here. What we've done is we have not understood that the Holy Spirit is God. <laughs> he's not at the bottom rung somewhere he is God co-equal co-existing and he in every way perfectly represents the Trinity and Jesus' whole life the distinguishing factor for him bringing the kingdom was the Holy Spirit because the kingdom is in the Holy Spirit it's why the Bible says in Romans that the kingdom of God is righteousness peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the anointed one and his anointing that rests upon ordinary flesh to empower and to do extraordinary things. Number one, you need to know this, that the Holy Spirit's job is not to make you do more. The Holy Spirit's job is to make you be more. Yeah. That the primary job of the Holy Spirit is not mission. The primary job of the Holy Spirit is to affirm your sonship. It was the primary job of the Holy Spirit to affirm Christ's sonship and it is the primary job of the Holy Spirit to affirm our sonship and our in Christness. And when you read the epistles, you hardly ever see the epistles talking about what we do with the Holy Spirit. You see what the epistles will say is what we are because of the witness of the Holy Spirit. Paul always talks about sonship in the context of the Holy Spirit. And for some of us, we talk a whole thing of don't fall over. I had someone say, are you guys still into that kind of Holy Spirit stuff? You know, you kind of fall over and get goosebumps and laugh a little bit. Absolutely, the river hasn't stopped flowing. In fact, the further away it gets from the throne, the better the river feels and gets a little bit deeper. And the reality is, you know, I, I hear people say, oh, you know, you need to get up off the floor and do some more for God. Don't just receive, you've got to do. No, the whole point of the Holy Spirit is to make you feel warm and gooey and yummy as the sons of God. <laughs> Put that in a religious pipe and smoke it. <laughs> because the reality is, brothers and sisters, if I don't know who I am, I cannot do what God's called me to do. And Jesus says, that's how I'm going to build my church. (laughs) Through the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. He's the foundation. And if you're going to accomplish anything great in in a local church, you have to understand that the Holy Spirit is all about kingdom. And so Jesus says, this is how I'm going to build the church, and I will give you keys of the kingdom. Notice this word church is the first time that Jesus uses this word. And um, it's a word speaking of uh, a people who are called out in order to govern. It's a colloquial word that Jesus is using. And we often use the word ecclesia and we talk about the called out ones and we leave it at that point. Actually the called out ones literally were ones who were called out to govern on behalf of Rome in order to make their area look a little bit more like Rome. So when Jesus says, you are the church, you're the ecclesia, he's saying, I'm calling you out of everything and everyone in order to govern and heavenize the earth that you're in. The region that you're in. That's why he goes into saying, I'll give you the keys. In other words, I'm giving you authority because keys represent authority. (laughs) It means 
that everything's holy to God. Work is holy, church is holy, fun is holy, everything is holy, 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 holy to God. Rest is holy to God. Everything that you do is holy to God and should come under the government of His peace. And for many of us, we, we, we're waiting till we get to heaven to rule and reign, when actually God has called us to rule and reign now. This is not, as, as, as my friend Simon Holly said, this is not just pie in the sky for the day that we die. This is cake on the plate while we wait. <laughs> we get to enjoy the reality of governing because we're called to come. Do you know that the church is called to be the ruling principality over your region? The Bible says, the word principality means first ruler. And the Bible says that Christ has ascended far above all rulers, authorities and principalities. And he is now the head. And all things have been given to and for the church. Our position in him means that we're far above any ruler, principality or authority that governs Birmingham or any area that you're in. But for many of us, we've abdicated our place of authority in God because we've not understood what it means to be a kingdom people. What it means... You see, Paul's... When you look at Paul's ministry career, he's not... I, I, I don't know, you know, you might disagree with me. I don't think Paul is actually that strategic. God bless him. One door opens and he's about to go through and he goes, no, the Holy Spirit's changed his mind and we're going somewhere else. I mean, his team, if he even had a team, must have been a little bit crazy because he had different people with him all the time. He's very fluid and he's in one place one moment, then he's in another place. He doesn't seem to have any kind of, you know, healthy strategic plan. (laughs) Yet whenever he goes into a region, kingdom comes. Kingdom breaks out. He's in the Hall of Tyrannus and in two years the whole area of Ephesus has changed even down to the economics of Ephesus. I think something's wrong in our, in our experience of the kingdom. <laughs> you know, contrary to popular belief, Paul wasn't perfect. He had all the same issues that we all have to deal with. <laughs> The church is built on the ongoing revelation of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, which is why if we don't have Holy Spirit activity in our church, and I'm not talking about goosebumps because the air conditioning is too cold. I'm talking about the dynamic revelation of power that comes with the person of the Holy Spirit. All we're doing is building a club. Come on. And we've got to change the way we think because God wants to release keys of authority in the kingdom. And true apostolic Christianity is not planting more churches. True apostolic Christianity is not based on doctrine. True apostolic Christianity is understanding heaven's government and funneling it in such a way through the church to release that government in every context. And the reason why we work with the poor, the reason why we do signs and wonders on the streets, the reason why we extend God's kingdom in our workplace, the reason why we need more creative people to release messages that carry kingdom uh, uh, resonance is because when the kingdom is manifested, it makes it easy for people to get saved. Mm, 
That's the whole point. And so your church has to somehow, your leadership, your, your, your style has to reflect heaven's government if we're going to see it on the earth. I, I'm not living to go to heaven. I'm living to bring heaven to the earth. Because heaven is not some coexisting reality, it's not some reality that's detached from the earth. It is a coexisting reality. Like I enter into any time I want to because there's a man with physical glorified flesh called Jesus who's made a way for me to enter into that realm and to manifest it here on earth. That's how church is built. And there, there is authority. Many, many churches are trying to come in for a landing, hopefully. Um, many churches are having prayer meetings praying for more power. The biggest waste of time you can do is to pray for something you already have. Yeah. <laughs> it's the biggest waste of time to ask God to do something that He's already told you to do. You have the person of the Holy Spirit unlimited power living inside of you miracles happen for five six year olds because they don't have unbelief until an adult tells them to not expect miracles (laughs) you've got all the power that you need what you need is a greater understanding of your authority you see power it's the ability to act. Authority is the delegated permission to act. And when Jesus died on the cross, he, he stripped the enemy of all his authority. The enemy is still powerful. Right? You just need to look at our world. You see the power of sin and the enemy at work. But the power of sin and the enemy uh, cannot have an effect on us if we understand our authority in God. That how we deal with enemy attack, how we deal with the impact, is not based on looking for more power. It's understanding that we have authority over these things. And the church, when it begins to understand its authority, will begin to release the government of peace wherever it goes. God's giving you keys of authority. And those keys open doors for you. Those keys give you places both in the realm of the Spirit. And, and I just want to say this, one of the things, can I be so bold? Well, I want to ask you permission, I'll just say it. Um, in our family of Church's New Frontiers, we have very often undervalued and underplayed a clear biblical understanding of spiritual warfare. And so we send out one, we often send our orphans onto the mission field because they've never understood their sonship and wonder why we're burning out on pastors so quickly because they've never understood that it's not their job to build church, it's their job to extend the kingdom. Okay, and I'm not talking, listen, pragmatism should follow the prophetic, not the other way around. You don't pragmatically decide what you're going to do and ask God to confirm it. You ask God what He wants to do, and then you make pragmatic steps to help it come to pass. Alright, so I'm not against structure and pragmatism. Actually, I carry a high level of strategy in understanding how to build church. That's not what I'm against. What I'm against is putting the wrong thing first. 
And, and one of the things that we have misunderstood is the role of spiritual warfare in extending the kingdom. And what we put down to as suffering that comes from the sovereignty of God most often is an attack from the enemy. I heard somebody say once, no, my sickness is a lesson from God, and so I need to just take the process and learn. At which I said, well, then don't go to the doctor, so you can learn the lesson well. Mm. Yeah, that's true. You know, I, I, you know, bigger theology for me is, I don't understand why I'm sick, I'm happy to embrace mystery, I don't need to have a theological answer for it. But I know that God is good, because what I do know about Him trumps what I don't know about Him. And for many of us, we're trying to build a theology when actually God's just asking us to step into the realm of faith and do some spiritual warfare. And you know what the great thing about spiritual warfare is? It's not enemy focused. Mm. <laughs> you know, God's design around spiritual warfare is to laugh. Mm. The Bible says in Psalm 2, he who sits enthroned on the earth laughs at his enemies. You know, when he wants to expose the enemy, in, 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 in the book of Esther, what does she do? She throws a party. And in the context of celebration. You know what the number one theme is for the kingdom of God? Feasting and celebration. Drinking a whole lot of wine. We need less thinking and more drinking. I mean they have the Holy Spirit, of course. Although a good glass of Merlot from South Africa never harms anyone. But we've become so serious and so cerebral and we've reduced Jesus to a set of truth or to a gospel presentation (laughs) that we've forgotten truth without experience is just information. That's why the Bible says you will know the truth. That word is genosko in the Greek. It means to come to personal understanding through experience. You can preach the gospel to you blue in the face, but until people experience the person of the gospel, all they're getting is information. It's like reading the newspaper without meeting the person. <laughs> and this gospel is a gospel of the kingdom. Now many of us, what we do is we read Jesus through the lens of Paul as if he had a greater revelation than Jesus. When actually all Paul was doing was unpacking what the gospel is all about in terms of the kingdom. And that we have to rediscover who Jesus is in terms of his understanding of the kingdom because it was revolutionary. It changed the way he treated women. I'll move on very quickly. Um, <laughs> fall on you frontier people. Um, it changes the way he deals with the poor. It changes the way he deals with the broken and the prostitute. It changes the way he dealt with the religious. Everything in the gospel hits up every cultural norm, every cultural value system and brings heaven to earth. And the way we do that is by the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And I fear in our churches in these last days, in these last uh, few years, in the last three or four years, is that the one activity we dial down on most is around the person of the Holy Spirit. I love what R.A. Curry says in his book on the Holy Spirit. He says this, 
if we understood the Holy Spirit in a more biblical way in terms of not just experiencing Him as power but as a person we would not pray for more Holy Spirit we would rather say Holy Spirit have more of me (laughs) you see we are no different from Jehovah's Witnesses if all we ever experience the Holy Spirit is as power because they believe he's a strong force too they believe he's a good wind that can blow through and he's just not a he (laughs) and I want to suggest to you that the charismatic church or whatever you want to call yourself post-charismatic, missional charismatic whatever it is has left out the person of the Holy Spirit and we've replaced it with programs we've replaced him with programs and good worship as if that equates to the anointing (laughs) everything has to change because when you understand that the church is built upon the person of the Holy Spirit because we now are in Christ that's the foundation everything changes and the kingdom becomes a delight not a chore the kingdom becomes an opportunity for peace of God to be made manifest not simply another good work that we have to add on to our program list it's not another website link that we have to put on look at our work with a point no 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 this is who we are as a community because we're a kingdom people filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen.